0: Alright, y'all ready? Psalm 139 is what we're going to look at tonight. Uh, We're going to focus on the omnipresence of God, Um, and you'll see that especially taught in verses 7 to 12 of the passage, but I'm I'm going to also zoom us out. After we look at 7 to 12, I'll zoom us out and look at the rest of it because I think it also gives us some of the, the practical implications that God is everywhere present. Um, Anybody in here like to feel all alone? Sometimes, right? I mean, I think probably the fair answer would be maybe sometimes, but in limited doses, I think all of us would admit to be utterly alone would be one of the most awful things that we can imagine. In fact, a lot of our lives are driven by a fear of being left all alone. Uh, This was one of David's great fears Uh, as we read the Psalms. uh, You know, David's life circumstances made him fear this. I mean, oftentimes he was on the run. Oftentimes, um, you know, he only had a few people around him. Sometimes he had no one around him. Uh, When he became king, there were a lot of people who said they liked him, but you know how that goes. When you're a powerful person or, or a wealthy person, lots of people say they're for you, but they're not. And so David, uh, I'm sure, often felt very alone and needed to know that he was not abandoned. Uh, There's one verse, not in this psalm, where David says of God, Lord, even if my mother and my father forsake me, you will not forsake me. Uh, And that's where David ends up settling his heart with his fear of being alone. Even if his mom and dad forsook him, and we have no indication that they actually did that. David's mom and dad, we don't know that they did forsake him. But he said, if they did, I'm still not alone because you will never leave me or forsake me. That's the topic of verses 7 to 12, if you'll look down at it. Verses 7 to 12 teach us what we call the omnipresence of God. And so tonight we're going to first look at the teaching This idea that wherever we are, we can say to God, you are there with me. You are with me always. But then in the second place, we're going to zoom out to the rest of the psalm and look at what the Puritans called the use of this teaching. What's the use? What's the application? And there we're going to see many of the things that David says in response, which I think will minister to our hearts. So first of all, uh, let's look at the teaching itself. Uh, David teaches the omnipresence of God by first asking two rhetorical questions in verse 7. Verse 7, he says, Where shall I go from your spirit, or where shall I flee from your presence? This is another example of parallelism in Hebrew where you have the same thing being said in two different ways back to back. It's one of the common poetic devices poetic methods that uh, the psalms use so spirit and presence mean the same thing and go from and flee from mean the same thing and of course the word where in both cases means the same thing the basic idea is this is there any place in all the universe where i can go where god is not that's his question can i go anywhere god where you're not well, these are rhetorical questions, meaning the answer should be obvious, which he, you know, basically assumes the answer to be no, and then goes on to give some examples. For example, if I go up, you are there. If I go down, you are there. If I go to the east, you are there. If I go to the west, there you are. If it's nighttime you're there. If it's daytime, you are there. That's what David says there in these verses. Uh, if I go up to heaven, you're there. That's that's the highest of heights. If I were to go as high as I could possibly go to the very top of the highest mountain, God is, is there just like he is down here on the ground. If I were to somehow make my bed in Sheol, which is really a Hebrew word for hell, or the opposite of heaven, you know, the Heaven is the upper place, hell is the lower place. If I were to make my bed in hell, and I think even some of the translations translate it that way, if I were to make my bed in hell, there you are. Uh, To the east, that's what the wings of the morning means. Uh, Why do you think the wings of the morning is the east? It's obvious, right? That's where the morning comes from. It flies in from the east as the sun rises. Uh, the next one, it means the west. If I dwell in the uttermost parts of the sea. Why, why is that, the west? Well, because the great sea was to Israel's west. What, what is the great sea to Israel? Geography quiz. Mediterranean, Mediterranean Sea. Yeah, that's, that's the great sea, as the Bible calls it. It's not like the smaller seas that they knew about on the eastern side of the country. On the west is the great sea. If I were to go to the east or the west, your right hand shall hold me, and your hand shall lead me even there, okay? The the, the idea here is even if I go across the borders of the Holy Land, if I go outside of the promised land where God has promised to be with me, even there he's going to be with me, uh, day or night, um, now, why do you think after doing all these directional, you know, plays, why does he go day or night, darkness or light? What do you think? What's that? It covers all times, yeah, because day or night are our times, you know, it covers all times of my life. Whether I'm young, whether I'm old, in the morning, at night, whether I'm asleep, whether I'm awake. What else does it cover? day or night? We tend to feel more abandoned. We do indeed, yes. And why is that, do you think? Um, well, you know, probably a lot of reasons. I can think of one, why I do, because you can't see anything in the dark, right? It's harder to see. It does, you can't look around and see a happy world around you with all the birds. It's all hidden in the darkness, in the shadows. And so it can feel much more depressing. Wasn't yesterday kind of a sad day? All that dreary rain and the darkness in the middle of the day, wasn't it? A little bit just, you know, kind of, ooh. That's the way darkness tends to go. But David says, look, darkness, even if it covered me, it's no different to you than if it were broad daylight. God God is not affected at all by The sunshine or the lack thereof he's not affected by the time on the clock in fact he's not in time at all and so God has this way of being fully present without any difference at all in every single circumstance that we're in he's not more present in one place than he is in another not in his essential nature right his essential nature all that God is is always present everywhere that's what David is teaching in verses 7 to 12 Uh, One Puritan said it, I think, in a way that is very quippy. They tended to do that. He says, God is neither shut up in any place nor shut out from any place. That is a great way to say God's omnipresence. He's not shut up in any place, He's not bound by any particular location, and neither is He shut out from any place. He's not excluded from any location. And that's a location on earth or heaven, or anywhere that you want to put it. God has absolutely no limits when it comes to place. In the same way that God has no limits when it comes to power, and in the same way that God has no limits when it comes to time, as we talked about last week, he's eternal. He had no beginning, and he will have no end, and he undergoes no change along the way. God is just always God. and the same way, God is always present. When you think about God's omnipresence, think about it that way. Don't think about God is just super big, and so a part of God is here, and another part of God is there, right? Like for us, the bigger you are, the more space you fill, correct? That's not what we're talking about, because all of God is in all places, Now each and every week, everything that we're saying, I realize here on Sunday nights in this series is kind of mind-blowing, and that one is for sure mind-blowing. I remember my kids when they were all learning the young kids' catechism, where is God? Answer, God is everywhere. We, we had some of our best and deepest theological discussions around that question. God is everywhere, Hmm. So, is he here? Is he there? Is he there? And they would just think of all the places. Is God in McDonald's? Is God, you know? Yes, 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 yes. God is everywhere. But not in the sense that he's physically immense and therefore fills space, but in the sense that he's over and above space. All of God is everywhere. That's why David was able to say, Wherever I am, there your hand will lead me, and there your right hand will lead me will hold me remember the hand of God represents the fullness of God's work the fullness of God's power to intervene it's not saying God has a literal left hand and a literal right hand it's just saying God's ability to work is everywhere in every situation no matter where I go I am going to find evidence in my life of God's ability to work in that place that means all of God is there wherever I am now, because this is mind-blowing, people have not always accepted it. Uh, many uh, other religions in the world have different ideas. In fact, there that are ideas that try to make this less incomprehensible. So let me give you a couple examples. Polytheism, which, is, which was the most popular form of religion in David's day when he wrote this, outside of Israel. Most everybody was a polytheist. Meaning they believed in a bunch of gods, not just one, but a bunch. Why did they have bunches of gods? Think about that. How did, how did polytheism come to be? Yeah, that's right. They had, to, they had to conceive of a god who, at one and the same time, was making thunder over there, helping wine and grain to grow over here, having a childbirth take place over there, and a death take place over here. And in their mind, they were like, there's no way that one single individual, one single being could do all that at one time. And so what we have to have is we have to have a God of the death, a God of the birth, a God of the rain, a God of the the grain and the wine. That's the way polytheism developed. Uh, It is not true, actually, historically it is incorrect, even though many people assume this, that everybody was polytheistic and it evolved over time to become monotheistic. Actually, it's true that Monotheism is first, and polytheism is a degeneration of monotheism, uh, as a way to try to 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 smooth over the rough edges of a God whom we simply cannot comprehend. Right? Most people, this is this is a common human uh, instinct. Most people want a God they can comprehend. Right? Christianity offers you a God that you can know, but not comprehend in the sense that you can't know all things about him. You can't contain it all. You can know truly, but you can't know fully. You can get a thimble of the ocean, but you can't contain the ocean. And that's just the way it's going to have to be. Because we are finite, God is infinite. And as John Calvin said, the finite cannot contain the infinite. And so when we try to do that, what we have to do is make little bitty finite versions of God and multiply them in order to fill our minds and space with all those things that God does. Same thing is also true, by the way, of religions that are pantheistic, that is, ones that believe that God is in everything, or that God is everything. Those those are more of the Eastern religions. They're less polytheistic and more pantheistic. It's the exact same thing, where you're trying to diffuse God into all created things rather than just simply saying God is above all created things and he's not bounded by our conceptions. Uh, David holds on to this in his life. And in case anybody is thinking, what's the relevance of any of this? Well, here's the relevance of this. David, throughout his whole life, is seeking to understand what his place is, seeking to understand what his calling is. And the only place he finds the answer to those questions is in his relationship to his God who has called him to his grace and the God who has called him to be king over his people. And he, he discovers that that God, no matter where he ends up going in pursuit of God's calling, that God is always going to be with him. Is it in the cave running from Saul? God is there. Is it running from your son Absalom? God is there, right? Is it fighting bears and lions? It is the, God is there. God is always with us in all of his ways. Now, one more point to bring up before we move to the second point is this, what about those places of the Bible where it seems to say God is present some places but not others? This is a big question and actually really important because what I've been describing up to now is talking about God's essential presence, that thing that, you, that doesn't change ever. When the Bible speaks about God, for example, being present in the temple in Jerusalem but not everywhere else, Or present in heaven in a way he's not on earth. Or present in heaven the way he's not in hell. Or present with his people in a way he's not present with those who are rebels. It's not talking about his essential presence. It's talking about his special covenant presence. His presence that he's promised to his people as a blessing to them. That's what it's speaking about there. And in in that sense, God is specially present some places and not others. And with some people and not others, right? Right? Uh, If you're not in covenant with God, God isn't present with you in the way that he would be if you were to get into covenant with him. The Bible makes that very clear. This, This is the whole illustration in the Old Testament of you have to go to Jerusalem to worship. That's the way it was in the Old Testament, right? To fully worship God. Now, you could do some of the worship at home, but to fully worship God, you had to make a trip to the temple. What was that about? Was that because God cares about real estate, in particular places on the map? It was is something special about Jerusalem? No. It was a type, it was a symbol of the truth that without a covenant relationship with God on his terms, you can't have his covenant presence. Jerusalem was a symbol of Jesus Christ. You know, it was a sim- you know, the temple was a symbol of Jesus Christ. If you don't come to God through Jesus Christ, you cannot have his covenant bless- blessing type presence, although his presence, of course, will be there, but it'll be there in a different way or with a different manifestation, maybe even in wrath rather than in- with blessing, which is the way God is present in hell versus the way he's present in heaven. That makes sense? Essentially, nothing changes with God, but covenantally, the way he relates to us, he expresses different things according to his own will and according to his promises. The great thing about it is, even when we tried to escape the presence of God, we couldn't do it, and God pursued us until he brought us back into his covenant presence. When David asks, where can I go from God? Where can I flee? What does that remind you of in the Bible? Reminds me of two stories. Adam. Somebody said Adam, I think. Reminds me of that. Why does it remind you of that, whoever said that? Was it Ryan? What's that? He tried to hide, right? Remember, he sinned, and he went, and God says, where are you, Adam. I hid because I realized I was naked because I sinned. He thought he could hide from God. God went after him. The second story I think about is Jonah. Yeah, Jonah tries to hide from God. God tells him to go one way. Jonah goes the other. What does God do? Finds him out. (laughs) He finds him. In fact, he doesn't really have to find him. He knows where he's at all along, but he finds him in the sense that he swallows him up and forcibly brings him back in the direction he wants him to go and spews him out on the beach Do you see how that works that that, uh, both of those things are pictures of the gospel in sin we do the foolish thing of trying to hide from the omnipresent god but the omnipresent god is always present and he's always seeking us always and actually in jesus christ he's seeking us to such a degree that he's actually able to restore us not just To his essential presence, which is always there, but to his covenant presence, which is a blessing. (laughs) To know the presence of God as our covenant Lord and Father is the greatest blessing that we could ever get. To simply be with God is the greatest blessing. And Jesus, by dying on the cross, remember what he did? He died and the veil of the temple was torn which was a symbol that the old Jerusalem thing that I was talking about a minute ago is done. You don't have to have that symbol anymore because the reality is now here. Through Jesus, you go into God's presence. The covenant presence of God is there in all of his glory and all of his power, which is what ultimately David was clinging to. Your hand shall lead me. Your right hand shall hold me. Not only do I know that you're present everywhere as a theory, But God, I know it as a covenant son that you are like a father to me, always with me, guiding me along the way. All right. That's the first thing. You are there. God is everywhere. He is neither shut up in any place nor shut out of any place, anywhere. But secondly, I want to look at the use of this. There's a lot to say here, and I want to zoom out now to all of the psalm, Psalm 139 as a whole because David draws some really important implications of the teaching of God's omnipresence. Uh, First of all, he says this whole idea is simply too wonderful for him. And then secondly, he says this whole thing is very precious to him. Those are the two things he says. It's very wonderful, too wonderful in fact. But secondly, it is very precious to me. And so let's look at the two. First of all, it's too wonderful. Uh, look at 139 uh, verse 1 through 6 with me once again. Uh, because God is everywhere, God has searched me and known me. The Lord knows when I sit down and when I rise up. He knows everything I do. In fact, he even knows my thoughts. He discerns my thoughts from afar. He searched out my path and my lying down and he's acquainted with all of my ways. In other words, God knows you better than you know yourself. How is he able to do that? Because he's everywhere present. Darkness is as light to him. Day is like night. Night is like day. It's no difference to God. The inner person is no different than the outer person. God can see our soul just the way you and I can see each other's face. He can see the thoughts of our hearts before they even happen. That's what it says, right? You know it all together. The words we speak, God knows, not just when they're on my tongue, but even before verse four, they are on my tongue. Behold, you know it all together. Wow. God knows my words even before I say them. By the way, this is why sin, <clears throat> according to God, doesn't just begin with the outward action. It begins with the heart, right? Because God already sees it coming. So that's why Jesus is able to say, okay, have you never, you've never murdered someone. Congratulations. But, have you hated them in your heart? Have you used your words to curse them? Oh, I see what this is like. I see what this is about, Jesus, right? It's not just when I do the action that it becomes a sin, but it's a sin already in a seed form, at least, when it's in my heart and when it's on my tongue. God already knows it. And God already judges it according to its merits. It's either good or it's bad. And to hate in a sinful manner is always bad. To curse someone in a sinful manner is always bad. It says here that uh, God hymns him in, behind and before, verse 5, and lays his hand. And this is where he says in verse six, such knowledge, Lord, is too wonderful for me. It is too high. I can't attain it. When I start thinking about this, that you know me inside and out better than I know myself, I lose myself. I can't even fully think it out. I've reached my limit, Lord. It's too wonderful. In verse 13, he picks that theme back up again when he talks about how he was formed in his mother's womb. And This this is a passage that's a favorite of many people. And it should be. It is very precious, right? God formed us, even our inward parts, when we were in our mother's womb. We are fearfully, and there's that word again, wonderfully made. It is too wonderful for me to think about this. God, before I was ever conscious, you were conscious of me. When my frame was hidden from the world, verse 15, it was not hidden from you. When I was still a secret, you were making me. When I was in the depths of the earth, I was being woven intricately. Verse 15. Your eyes saw my substance before it was formed, and catch this in your book was written every one of them all the days that were formed for me, when as yet there was none of them. Every day of our life was already written in a book by God, before one of those days had even happened. Too wonderful. (laughs) Too wonderful for me to even contain that thought. What comes to your mind when you hear stuff like that? These wonderful ideas that God knows us better than we know ourselves, that he formed us when we were yet unseen in the world, and that he even uh, recorded our future history. What do you think? What should you think? Do you think? Yeah. That's right. There is a great deal of comfort that comes from it. Absolutely. Yeah. What else? Mind blown. Yeah, you kind of see what David means. Fearfully and wonderfully I am made. I am made in such a way that it just strikes awe in me. And it's too wonderful for me to think about. What else? Clint? Clint? Yeah, so in other words, he's way ahead of us, right? <laughs> yeah, like what he has planned for us, as the Bible says, no, my, no human can conceive. No eye can see, no ear has heard what you have planned for those who love you. We, we know enough of it in the Bible and through Christ that we can get by and get through this life gloriously if we listen to what God says. But we're still behind what God knows. And we'll one day we'll know more. I think the more we get at that, the less this other stuff would seem to matter. That we think is a big deal. Yeah, that's right. It does. T- it tends to bring a little bit of a sense of priority to life when we realize um, how big God is, how immense and wonderful His thoughts are. All those things, right? I also think Can one. You go ahead. About the older you get. Sure. Yes. Yeah. How so? Well, yeah. Mm. You know that you get and further, and the more days that are numbered that are behind you, yeah. Then, then you got going forward, still in front of you. That's right. Yeah, it does does tend to teach you those lessons, doesn't it? I think. Yeah. It's also uh, I, I think a great prompt to praise God, which is what David is doing here, right? He's he's happying his heart in God, Lord you've searched me, you've known me, you know me better than I know myself. You've got to remember this is a psalm. This is a song to be sung to God. It's a prayer to be prayed to God. He's addressing God as a you, you know, you and I. Um, Sometimes you ought to try that. You, you ought to try to just talk to God about how amazed you are about him. That's the part of prayer that we call praise or adoration. It's easy to get the part of prayer that is called what we call petition, where you're saying, God, help me, help me, help me, do this, do this, do this. And I'm not knocking that because that's important. But don't forget the part of prayer that is just simply, God, you are, and it's too wonderful for me. I can't contain it, what you've done in my life and what you have already planned for me that I don't even know. Lord, everywhere I go, you're there. There's something beautiful about that aspect of prayer that David is modeling for us here that's really good for the soul, honestly. But secondly, I want you to see in verses 17 to 24, he says, it's not only too wonderful, but it's precious to me. Precious. He uses that word in verse 17. How precious to me are your thoughts, O God. How vast is the sum of them. If I were to count them, they are more than the sand. I awake and I am still with you. You're everywhere. It's as almost as if as he tried to count God's thoughts, he fell asleep. <laughs> Because there were too many to count. And then when he woke up, there God was still with him. Isn't that neat? Now, that word precious is interesting because we have kind of trivialized the word a little bit. Uh, When you think of the word precious, what do you think of? Yeah, Gollum. Okay, yeah, there you go. So if you're a Lord of the Rings person like me, my precious, yes. You you might think of the, the ring to bind them all. Uh, but if you're not quite as much of a nerd as some of us, you might not think of Gollum, but what would you think of? Precious. Moments. Precious moments. Oh, how precious. Meaning what? What's, what's that? Little figurines, little cutesy, you know, saccharine, you know, things that are just sweet and cutesy. That stuff. That's precious stuff. But actually, that's not really the word precious. I mean, I want you to think of the word precious in a different way. Precious metal. Precious gold. I mean, what does that mean, Robert, when it's precious? Yeah, he did this, which is right. It's expensive. Uh, Why is gold and other precious metals expensive? Why are they expensive? The quantity of them is limited in this world. Therefore, they're precious. Therefore, they're costly. They're more limited than the other things. The purer the gold is, the purer the other metal, without any mixtures, whatever carrot, for example, that's what the, the purity of the gold, that's even more precious because you've got more of the very rare thing. That's what this word is. It's not the cute, oh, how sweet. Let's knit a pillow with the precious thoughts of God. No, this is... God's thoughts are gold to be stored away. I'm not against knitting pillows, by the way. Yeah, not at all. But you know what I mean. It's not, that's not what precious is. Precious is golden. Precious is diamonds. Precious is, you know, it is the currency that will last forever. That's what precious means. God, how precious to me are your thoughts. David had a lot of things in his life eventually, Especially when he became king, he was very wealthy. And yet, David said, The most precious thing are the thoughts of God that I get to think after him. The thoughts of God that I get to hear and understand and praise him for and find comfort in and prioritize over all the other things of my life. That's what's precious. Don't you see David's zeal in these last verses, right? David gets super zealous at the end. In fact, he gets so zealous at the end of the psalm that we freak out a little bit as he goes on because we think, man, David, you were on a roll with this prayer. But then in verse 19, David, you got a little ahead of yourself. David, this, this was a great little poem you were working up and then all of a sudden, slay the wicked, O God. Men of blood, depart from me. They take your name in vain. Oh, in verse 21, what a, what a verse that we have a hard time with. Do I not hate those who hate you, Lord? I loathe them. I hate them with a complete or a perfect hatred. I count them as my enemies. David, it was so good up to that point. What are we seeing there? We're seeing something that you find a few different times in the Psalms, more than a few, several times in the Psalms. It's called, these are imprecatory prayers, that's the word for it, meaning prayers that are prayed against the enemies of God, against sin or against other things that stand in the way of God's purposes in the world. It's important that we not read this thinking that David has all of a sudden switched into, you know, Middle East mode. Okay, this is not all of a sudden David becomes this bad Middle Eastern example of Middle Eastern vengeance. No, that would be unfair to David. After all, right after he says this, he goes back to his what we would consider his dearness and sweetness in verse 23. Search me, O God, and know my heart. Try me and know if there are any wicked ways in me, and lead me in the way everlasting. He goes right back to his very pure, what we would think of as pure spiritual thoughts. And so let's give David the benefit of the doubt. David was pure spiritually in this psalm, because he was inspired by God, both in verses 1 through 18 and 23 and 24 and in verses 19 through 22. Verses nineteen twenty two are also examples of a spiritually pure prayer. Why is that? Well, notice, first of all, David is not saying, God, I just simply hate people. I'm in a bad mood. People cramp my style. I'm old and crotchety. That's not what David's saying. David says, I hate that which is against you. I hate those who are against you. I oppose what you oppose. My zeal for you has eaten me up. And I'm zealous with the same zeal that you have within you, God. I'm jealous with your jealousy. This is not a a plea for personal vengeance. This is David bringing to God... The anger and frustration of his heart when he sees the sin of the world. And by the way, not just the sin of the world, but in verse 23, the sin of himself. Because he turns it right away and says, search me too. I hate those who hate you, but you know what? Search me, and if there's anything in me that's grievous to you, kill that too. Kill it all. All the sin. Take away all the evil. Take away all those things. That oppose you. This is a model actually of how we are to deal with wickedness in the world and in our life. You don't deal with wickedness by baptizing it and calling it good. And you also don't deal with wickedness by bringing more wickedness, by trying to take matters into your own hands and seek vengeance according to your own imagination. Instead, what do you do? You pray. You pray. You express your zeal against what is evil to the Lord. You unburden your heart. And while you're at it, make sure you ask God to turn his searching lamp onto you too. That'll keep you humble, right? When you're praying against the evil of the world, Lord, bring down those who are, you know, Stealing children. Bring down those who are abusing people. Bring, and we should pray. This is that type of prayer. Also, remember to pray Lord, search me. Find the grievous ways and root them out of me, too. Because, Lord, I know what your kingdom is about. Your kingdom is about all evil being banished and all righteousness being exalted. Do that. Do that. I hate those who hate you. I hate them with a complete hatred. That's David being honest. Now, you can imagine maybe some of the reasons why David would express himself that way. And there's a caution here that I would give you. David is not praying this because someone cut him off in traffic. Right? That ain't it. David was the king of Israel. David experienced a lot of real, true evil against him, and he also dealt out a a fair share of evil himself as well. Um, Likely, this is, I mean, think about the kind of prayers that you would pray if you were a Ukrainian Christian in, you know, the war-torn country right now, and there's literally bombs falling on houses around you. I mean, that's what we're talking about here. (laughs) this is not being, you know, cut off in traffic. I'm talking about the big things of life, the violence, the hatred, the rape, the murder, the abuse. What do you do with that? You bring it to God. You oppose it with all your might the way God opposes it, and you talk to God about it, and you entrust it to him, and you ask God to also turn his searching light onto you, because you know that wherever you are, God is there. God sees and knows. He knows you better than you know yourself. It's a comforting thought. It's a thought that ought to spur us to praise. And you know, it's a thought that ought to drive out of us all this luke, all lukewarmness. I mean, there's nothing lukewarm about David at the end of the song. David is hot under the collar for the Lord. And when you know that your God is everywhere present, and you know that that God has pledged all his goodness to you in the covenant, he's given it to you, you'll be hot under the collar for God. Rather than just this meek, mild, you know, maybe the Lord, maybe not. Right? God is everywhere. Therefore, God is too wonderful to even comprehend and so precious that nothing in this world could possibly compare to him in value.